Well, good morning, church family. I just want to take a moment and uh, thank you all for loving the Hemphill family so well. And uh, it was just, it was a wonderful service. And I just appreciate the ways that you rallied around them as we celebrated and continue to celebrate the remarkable life of Emma. If, uh, if you have a Bible with you this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn with me uh, to the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll be in chapter 3. And if you are exploring Christianity, if you're new to reading the Bible, 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, to the church located in the city in, of, in Corinth. And uh, Corinth, you would find in modern-day Greece, it, it sits at the base of the isthmus, or we could call it the little land bridge that connects the Greek mainland with the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Uh, now, especially in the winter, sailing around that Peloponnesian Peninsula in the ancient world was a lengthy and dangerous enterprise. And so you can see that Corinth's strategic location made it this flourishing crossroads uh, for traffic that connected Ephesus in the eastern part of the empire with Rome in the western half. Today, I know that we think of Athens, right, as the most influential city in Greece. But 2,000 years ago, it was Corinth, both politically and economically. It was the cosmopolitan hub. It had the vibrant business center. It was a city that was humming with wealth and trade and expansion. This city had everything that it needed, even natural resources. There was a fountain that provided an almost limitless supply of water. One commentator I read suggested that the, the Corinth of Paul's day was at once the New York, the Los Angeles, and the Las Vegas of the ancient world. And the, the ethos that permeated the city was one of self-sufficiency and self-advancement. The people of Corinth were ambitious and competitive. And the, the, the competition for success was everywhere, not just in the Isthmian Games, which were second only to uh, the Olympian Games in terms of popularity, but there was also competition in trade and social standing and economic power. And so if you can picture this, just imagine a culture where the people are preoccupied with their status where they're eager to promote themselves and advance their social standing. If you can fathom it, envision a people wrapped up in accumulating wealth and rubbing shoulders with the right people and trying to gain influence, all in the hopes of attaining a higher social status. Could you imagine that? Well, into that society steps the Apostle Paul around the year 50 AD, and his message is very antithetical to that of the culture. Uh, namely, he's proclaiming a Savior who humbled himself to the point of death on a cross for their salvation. We know from Acts 18 that Corinth was Paul's last major stop on his second missionary journey. He ministered there for approximately a year and a half, about 18 months, and uh, he shared the gospel, people came to know the Lord, and a church was found. And then we know from Acts 19, verse 1, that after Paul left Corinth, a gentleman by the name of Apollos, who was a persuasive communicator, 
He also ministered in Corinth for a season before moving on. Well, uh, approximately three uh, years later, after Paul had left Corinth, he pens this letter that we're about to read. And the occasion for the the letter is twofold. Uh, We know that he is responding to a letter that he has received from the people in Corinth. They've asked him some questions. We see this in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and um, he goes on to, to answer a specific question and some of the other ones that they had uh, inquired about. Some of them are behavioral in nature, some are theological. And then the other reason Paul is writing is because he has received this report with some very disturbing news. Uh, we see this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 11 and 10. He's got this report uh, regarding kind of the state of the church. He says, For it's re- reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And as you might imagine, uh, this report is very troubling to Paul. And he wants to address this quarreling head on. And we're going to see him do that now. Look with me at chapter 1. We'll look at verses 1 and 2. He writes this. He says, but I, brothers, and if you have your Bible open, you'll see that there's a little footnote, at least in the ESV, that indicates that Paul's language here is inclusive. He's not just talking to the men of the church. Uh, So we could say, but I, brothers and sisters, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. This is an indictment. He chides them, but uh, he does it in a pastoral way. He softens the blow. He begins by calling them brothers and sisters. But then he doesn't pull any punches. He says, more or less, you might regard yourselves as spiritual. You might think of yourselves in that way, but you're not. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Tripp and Tyler. Anybody been on YouTube and seen these guys? Um, Most of their stuff is is pretty clean, and um, I I find it to be hilarious. I was a a young lieutenant um, down at Fort Benning, and th- like, through a friend of a friend, a few of us got connected th- with this family that lived on the north side of Atlanta. And sometimes on the weekends, we would head up there. And this family had the gift of hospitality. And we'd spend some weekends with them. And uh, one night, we're hanging out there. They got a son that's the same age as me. And Matt says, hey, you got to see this video that um, my sister's boyfriend, Tyler, and, and his friend Trip made. And so I watched my trip, first Trip and Tyler video. And like, once a year now, I just hop on YouTube just, just to see what they have out there. And they, they have this one video that I, I, that I think kind of is going to help illustrate the point that Paul is making here about the church in Corinth. You know, I have a fire truck. I sleep in a big boy bed. My dad goes to work. I'm 35 and a half. Tyler, how's your job? It's fine. How's the game tonight? (laughs) (laughs) Oh 
my gosh. Wow. <laughs> We're thinking about staying tonight. You should. We're having biscotti later. It's gonna be great. Sorry, what? Biscotti? Sorry, it's the has noodles and sauce on top. Uh, spaghetti. Yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> hey man, sorry, they only have one cookie left. Why? I wanted to! I hate you! I'm gonna go grab an order. Excuse me, everyone. Sorry to interrupt, but uh, I just poopied all by myself in the potty. So, cheers. <laughs> What were you saying about your new job? <laughs> it's a little silly to see a grown-up acting like a two-year-old, isn't it? You know, uh, it, it, it might be a little strange if after the service uh, you saw me getting a little worked up because there were no chocolate muffins left in, in the coffee bar, right? But, you know, if it was a two-year-old and they're a little bent out of shape about that, You'd understand, it's to be expected, right? Uh, there are only two. But there comes a point in time when childish behaviors are no longer accepted because you should mature as you age. And if one grows older but continues to act in childish ways, we say that person is immature. When Paul first came to Corinth, he couldn't address them as spiritually mature, but as infants in Christ. He fed them with milk because they were babes in the Lord. That was to be expected. The problem is now that three years have gone by, and guess what? They haven't grown up. They're still acting childish. And at this point, they're not spiritually young, but spiritually immature. When Paul says that you are still of the flesh, he isn't saying that they're not Christians, he has a different term for that. We see that in chapter 2. He calls the person who isn't believer uh, a natural person. Paul is writing to believers here, to those who are in Christ. Otherwise, he, he wouldn't address them as brothers and sisters. And he doesn't refer to them as being of the flesh because they lack the Holy Spirit. We know that because elsewhere, Paul will write, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And later in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, He'll tell them that God's Spirit lives in them. They're fleshly. They're, they're characterized by the flesh. They're of the flesh because they have the Spirit, and yet they're acting like they don't. They're acting like unbelievers. They're more influenced by the culture around them than by that Spirit that lives in them. And then uh, Paul goes on to give them the reason uh, for, for telling them that they're not as spiritual as they think they are. He says that there's, there's quarreling among you. He says that there are divisions within their church. Look with me at verse 3. He says, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Now to be clear, these verses shouldn't be used to argue that the unity of the church should be maintained at all costs. 
Because in a, in a subsequent letter to Corinth, Paul asks this rhetorical question. He says, what fellowship has light with darkness? And then two chapters later, the apostle is going to command that certain people be expelled from the church, that they be purged, they be expunged. The apostle would very much agree with Adrian Rogers, who said it's better to be divided by truth than united in error. The issue here was that divisions were arising within the church among genuine believers for some unfortunate and silly reasons. And it would be naive to think that we're somehow immune from this 2,000 years later because our enemy, Satan, loves to use a division as a tool to tear down the church. Uh, 2020 was a hard year for a lot of churches. We had a presidential election, uh, which always has the potential to be a divisive occasion. And on top of that, there was a global pandemic, if you recall. And that brought about some unique challenges. People were divided over the efficacy of masks and vaccines. And, and thanks be to God that, on a whole, he maintained our unity as a church. But that wasn't the case for a lot of churches. And, you know, I can recall an occasion where I spent like 40 minutes on the phone with someone who was convinced that we were, we were operating in fear and not faith because of the, some of the protocols that we had put in place and they didn't want to worship here if they were going to have to abide by them. And then, like a few days later, I find myself responding to someone who was equally upset because they thought we were being unloving by opening our doors and giving people the option to worship in person. You guys can probably recall having some of those same conversations yourself. And I'll just say, hopefully we don't have another global pandemic in my lifetime. But as long as Jesus tarries, we will have a presidential election and there will be other issues that will arise where maybe scripture isn't explicitly clear and we might not all agree with one another. For many churches, like 20 years ago, it was worship wars. Should you have guitars and, and drums on the stage? And some of us might laugh about that now, but that was a really divisive issue for some churches. Some of you might, might have even like, you know, been in a church that had those conversations. I, I don't know what the potentially divisive issue will be five years from now, but I would just encourage us to be very careful about the, the issues that might cause unnecessary division among us. We're to look for ways to maintain the unity of the church. Uh, the apostle is going to tell us that that's a mark of spiritual maturity, and we'll get more instruction on how specifically we should go about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We know that there were multiple causes of division within the church there, but the specific reason that's addressed first is division that arose on account of a distorted view of church leadership. There was a distorted view of church leadership. We'll continue now in verse 4. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So what's going on here? Well, in, in, in their culture, one of the ways that you tried to advance your social standing was by aligning yourself with the right benefactor or patron. And 
the Corinthians, they just took this practice from their culture and they imported it right into the church. As a way of elevating their status within the congregation, they thought they could align themselves with the right leader and sort of bolster their status. And so the church just became another arena where they would compete for prestige according to societal norms. And, and with this question right here, uh, Paul is saying, are you not acting like unbelievers? Are you not adopting the value system of your culture instead of that of Jesus when you, when you jostle with one another for prestige in this way? And as a way of bringing their thinking into alignment with the gospel and, and, and correcting their, their misperceptions, he's going to lay out the remedy to this problem. We're going to see it in the next three paragraphs. Remedy number one, uh, we'll find in verses five to nine, uh, the, the, the corrective offered is this, don't take too high a view of church leaders. And the analogy that's used to drive this point home is that of a field. It's an agrarian metaphor. Look with me now at these verses. He says, what then is Apollos, what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. You know what's interesting? Paul doesn't ask, who, who then is Apollos? Who is Paul? He says, what then is Apollos? What? is Paul. And that's because he's drawing attention to the role that they played. They're simply servants. They're farmhands. They're the errand boys. He, he downplays the importance of their work in founding and, and developing this church in Corinth. You know, he behaves in the very opposite way of the, of the Christians there in Corinth. They're all concerned with elevating their status. And what does Paul do? He does the exact opposite. He, he downplays his role. He says, oh, yeah, you, you can just think of us as, uh, as humble field hands. We're just manual laborers out on the farm. And, and through the image of a planter and an irrigator, what Paul does here is he places him and Apollos on equal footing. He, he shows that their work is interdependent. There, there's no competition between the two of them because they're both working towards the same goal. He who plants... And he who waters are one. They're on the same team. And at the end of the day, the tasks of the laborers are nothing in comparison with what God does. He's the one that brings about the growth. He does the saving. He gets all the credit. He gets all the praise. And as we think about how this might apply to us today, just like in Paul's day, you know, we can import practices from our culture into the church. One characteristic of, of our culture is that, um, you know, we, we could be a little concerned about celebrities. We've got TV shows and magazines dedicated to celebrities. When uh, something happens in the life of a, of a celebrity, you know, people take pictures of it and they put it in the newspaper and they write about it. The major uh, events of their lives are sort of feature news stories. And I, I just observed that, you know, it's possible that we can make the same mistake as the Corinthians 
by creating our own little celebrity culture and you know, elevating the roles of those who are maybe especially gifted at speaking and we can even create celebrity pastors. I just say, you know, I think it's wonderful if modern technology allows us to, to benefit from a message that's given in a completely different state. But I'd say it's, it's not great if we get caught up in a cult of personality and we give someone in a completely different state, uh, maybe an oversized influence in our lives. We can't elevate you know, certain folks just because of their gifting because what we see in Scripture is that all ministry is significant in God's eyes. And so we can be grateful for someone's ministry and we can pass along encouragement for someone's ministry, but we just need to remain focused on the fact that it's God who's able to make use of everyone's labor. And I would say the principle that's laid out here can also get applied in the other way, too. It can also be directed to those who are involved in church leadership. I'd say whether that's like a pastor or whether that's just someone serving on a committee or someone who's a deacon. When one uh, assumes a leadership role, when they join a committee or become a deacon, there's the temptation to begin to view the church as yours. And um, those of you who have been a part of a church where maybe divisions have broken out, where there has been a little fighting and some factions, you, you, you've heard the arguments that sometimes people will make in these meetings, right? They'll say things like, well, my family built this church. You know, my granddaddy carved this pulpit. You, you can't go changing this in my church. There's a lot of first-person pronoun there. And... Uh, that's not what this passage teaches, right? It says that the church is whose? It's God's. And I just want to take a moment and I want to commend our, our primary teaching pastor, David Beatty. I think if there's anyone who could come and talk about River Oaks as if it's my church, it would be the guy who founded the church almost 25 years ago. And I've, I've worked alongside him for 13 years. I've been in session meetings with him and never once have I heard him refer to this place as his church. And it, it just it shows a deep understanding of what's taught in this passage. The church belongs to God. In, in verse 9, right there, if we were to take the end of that sentence, those last two sentences, and we were to literally translate it, how it reads in the Greek, it would read like Yoda wrote it. It goes like this. God's we are, co-workers, God's field, God's building, you are. And, uh, and with that final sentence right there, you might notice the change in metaphor. The church is likened to a field and then a building. And in the next paragraph, that second metaphor is explained. And the point made now is don't take too low a view of church leaders either. Look with me now at these verses. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will be manif become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. 
if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. In, in shifting the images from the agricultural world to that of the, the construction industry, we learn that quality worksmanship by God's laborers matters when it comes to building the church. Paul notes that he was a skilled master builder. So as a contractor, he has an A-plus rating. Why? Well, when you're building a church, what matters isn't the giftedness of the preacher, but the one who is preached. And the foundation that Paul laid in Corinth was rock solid because he preached Christ crucified. Uh, the footings for the building that he poured are firmly anchored in the gospel. And the main point uh, of this paragraph is found at the end of verse 10. He says, let each one take care how he builds upon it. This, this caution isn't directed at anyone in particular, certainly not at Apollos who has left Corinth by this point. Rather, he's speaking here to the team of builders, and that can include some of us, who are continuing to work on the building that he started. And there is encouragement to build well. And at the same time, there's a warning, isn't there? There's a, there's a caution against shoddy worksmanship. In order for work to be done well, two criteria have to be met. One, you have to continue building on the foundation that Paul laid. And I, and I take that to mean don't go tweaking the core message. Don't go trying to change things to make it more culturally relevant, to make it more appealing to a modern audience. You just preach the faith. You build upon the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. And then two, use quality building materials. And I take that uh, to mean that those quality materials, those, those ones that are imperishable, that are going to survive uh, the, the judgment day, that, that's just spiritual service that's done for the right reasons in the right ways. If service is just done haphazardly, Maybe if it's done from selfish motives or if it's done for human praise or if it's done for gain in some way, well, that's the equivalent of building with perishable materials. And if you do that, at the final day, it's going to be revealed for what it is. It's just mere human effort. And there's going to be loss suffered. Not a loss of salvation, but a loss of reward. Now, on the other hand, everyone who builds on that foundation that's already been laid and they do it in the right way for the right reasons, out of obedience to Jesus, that's work that's going to get rewarded. And we aren't told the nature of that reward. We, we don't know what it'll be, but here's what I can tell you. I think it's going to be even better than our volunteer appreciation dinner on December 6th. That's going to be a pretty special night. It's going to be good food. It's going to be a nice banquet. But I think... Uh, our God has even far more resources than the church. And he's an incredibly gracious and generous God. And I want you to notice, if you look at these verses, who the promise is for. He says it's, does he say it's, it's for pastors? No, he says it's for anyone who continues to, to build on the foundation. We see it in verse 
verse 12 and in verse 14 there. If anyone builds on the foundation in these ways. And so I just say that that's for all of us who maybe out of a love for Jesus go and seek to build the church. Maybe you're serving in Noah's Ark. Maybe you're in Kids Rock. Maybe you're out in the parking lot. Maybe you're on the coffee bar team. One day, the building inspector is going to come back and he's going to look at what you've done. And he might say, man, I just, I've, I've seen the way that you've been faithful back there in Noah's Ark. No one else sees it, but I want you to know I see it. And I love the way that you've poured into those kids. I, I love the way that you've taught them a memory verse and you've shared Bible stories with them and, and just represented my likeness and my love to them. And I want you to know that that excites me and here is your reward. That's the kind of God that we have. When we serve in that way, there's a reward that's promised. Now, in this final paragraph, Paul is going to shift from trying to correct uh, the Corinthians' false perceptions about church leadership to correcting their understanding of the nature of the church itself. He takes this building analogy a step further by specifying the type of building that he and others have been erecting. He says it's a temple. And with this analogy, he encourages the Corinthians to take a high view of the church. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. He says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. In the English language, it's often difficult in, in writing to distinguish second person singular from second person plural. For clarity, uh, down here in the south, when we want to use second person plural, we have a word for that, don't we? We say y'all, yeah. And that's the word Paul has in mind here. The you is plural. And that's uh, significant because when we read this passage, I think some of us, we, we automatically jump ahead to a verse that you might have heard before. We think of 1 Corinthians six nineteen where Paul writes this, he says, or do you not know that you are God's, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own. And, and the point made there in, in chapter six, uh, the focus is on the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit within every individual believer. But that's not the point being made in chapter three. The you is plural, and it's speaking to the community gathered in Christ's name, the church, as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And this must have been a staggering thought to the Corinthians. Here they are, you know, surrounded by all these magnificent marble temples, temples to Octavia and Apollo and Aphrodite. And here they are hanging out in a house church. And Paul says, well, hey, don't you know that the God of the universe, the creator of all that, that there is, the king of kings, the one and only God, well, he, he has a temple in Corinth too, and you're it. He, he's choosing to dwell in your midst through his spirit when you gather together. But the Corinthians, through their striving and quarreling, were destroying that temple. And God takes damaging the church even more seriously than he does shoddy worksmanship. 
We know that because, you know, the line between just being a lousy worker and, and one who is destroying the church is pretty clear. The punishment is far more severe. God is going to destroy the one who tries to destroy his church. And at the same time, this is a serious warning. When we think about it, it's also an invitation. It was an invitation for the Corinthians to come what, in fact, they already are by the grace of God, his holy temple in Corinth. And it's the same invitation to us, for us to be this genuine alternative to the, to the, to the unbelieving world around us, a place where, where God's presence is manifest, his goodness is reflected, as, as we as a church would live out his values into the world. And by way of application, I don't have the sense that many of us are, are working to destroy the church. I'm really grateful for that. It's wonderful to be in a place like that. But I do wonder that if some of us have failed to take seriously the, the significance of the truth that's conveyed here. See, my concern isn't so much that someone's trying to tear down the church, so much as it is that we take it too lightly, and so we, we work to subvert the church simply by discounting it. Well, we can treat it as this optional Sunday morning activity rather than what God sees it as, His temple, the place where His Spirit dwells. You know, it, it's no secret that our culture prizes individuality. We're encouraged to make decisions on, you know, what's best for you. You do you. You, you, need, to, you need to do whatever's going to make you happy. You need to pursue your own happiness. You should express yourself in ways that are unique to you. We have iPod, iPods and earbuds where we can listen to the music we want, and there's on-demand streaming with content that we can tailor to our our specific individual preferences. You know, recently the Atlantic reported that 40 million Americans have stopped attending church in the past 25 years. The change is so significant that sociologists are referring to it as the great de-churching. And with all the focus on the individual, maybe it's no surprise that I've heard, and maybe you've heard this too, people saying things like, well, you know, I don't know if I really need the church. I just, you know, I feel closer to God when I'm at the lake or I'm out in nature or I'm out hiking or I'm on the golf course. And I just say the problem with that is that God says if we really want to connect with him, if we want to draw closer to him, then our participation in the life of the church should be a priority because that's where he's chosen to have his spirit dwell. Here's one of the other reasons we know that the church would be important for a believer because it's important to God. One of, one of his means of grace in our lives, one of the ways that kind of, um, that he would enable us to live a more faithful and godly life is um, this meal that he instituted on the night he was betrayed called the Lord's Supper. It's a meal that reminds us of all that Jesus did on our behalf and all of the benefits that are now ours through our union with him. And you know what? The Lord's Supper, is, is that a meal that we just go and we take by ourselves privately, you know, like in the kitchen when we're just feeling 
especially spiritual? No. That, 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 that's a meal that we, we take together as a church. And that's because the Lord's Supper isn't just a pledge of, of, of our communion with Jesus. It's also a pledge of our communion with each other as parts of the church. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17 says this, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we, are all, for we all partake of the one bread. So when we celebrate this meal, we're reminded that, that we're one body, that we're one family, that we're members of the same household. And uh, before we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I want to remind us of some instruction that we receive in 1 Corinthians 11. The apostle writes this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so, uh, before we celebrate this meal together, we'll provide a moment just for us to examine ourselves and confess anything that we need to. And uh, I'd say, too, just, just from reading that instruction right there, one of the things that God intends is that this would be a meal that would only be celebrated by those who are part of His family, those who have placed their faith in Him. And, and if you're here and you know that you're not part of God's family yet because there's never been a point in time where you have placed your faith in Jesus. Well, today can be the day that you do that. And uh, what we see at the beginning of 1 Corinthians is that God sometimes, He takes the things that the world would say is foolish, and that's His wisdom. And maybe that for you is the cross you've looked at and say, ah, that's the most absurd thing I've ever heard. But I'd say, no, no, no. This is the best news you've ever heard. That God would send his eternally begotten son, Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago to this earth. And he came and he revealed what God is like to us. But more than that, he, he lived the perfect life that none of us could ever live. And then the punishment that each one of us deserved to bear for our rebellion against God, for going our own way. The Bible calls that sin, by the way. That Jesus would bear the punishment from that. What separated us from God, that he would take care of that. And then when we place our faith in him, what happens is God says, I don't see you and I don't see your mistakes. I've removed those as far as the east is from the west because what I see is that the perfect righteousness of my son, Jesus Christ, you have been wrapped in that. You have been clothed in that. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that's one of the things that we celebrate when we take this meal. And if you've, you've never made that decision, you've never accepted that righteousness that he offers, uh, there'll be an opportunity to do that in a moment.
Let's take a moment now for silent prayer. Lord, we thank you that we as your people can come before you and say, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Thank you that we can do that because of what you did for us. And if you're here and you want to be able to say that with us, you can just say a prayer like this. Jesus, I believe you are who you said you are. And I know I need you. Thank you for being my substitute. And I want to receive the righteousness that you offer. And I acknowledge you not just to be my Savior, but to be my Lord. And I want to live for you all of my days. Help me to do that now. And all God's people said, Amen.